Hey everybody, uh, good to see all of you guys this evening. Happy 2020. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this year. Um, now tonight, we're not in a uh, specific series. I, I want to share some things with you that I've been thinking about and, and um, they've been, it's been close to my heart, maybe even uh, could be called like a life message. And, and I really think it, it's some things that are going to shape the year 2020. See, um, I believe that 2020 will be a year of freedom. 2020 is going to be a year of freedom. Um, what I mean by that is I think that you, people in, our, in this family, you're going to get free from things you never thought that you could get free from. Um, and you're going to uh, see the way that you think and the way that you live completely change as a result. Um, now, it could be easy to say that and you say, oh, that's a nice thing to say. Um, but but I don't I don't mean that it's just gonna it's gonna ha- happen randomly. See, I believe that it will be the year of freedom because I believe that this next year is going to become a year of trust. See, freedom isn't random. People don't just um, stumble upon freedom like you know. I've just been living my life. I was I was totally you know captive uh, to this fear or or to to that thing or this person, and next thing I know, I'm free. Uh, we have this, you know, classic saying in America, you know, freedom isn't free. And, and the reality is that it really is not. See, um, the, the, the biblical word for freedom is this. It's gospel. The biblical word for freedom is gospel. Um, it's the gospel that sets us free because it's the good news of Jesus' abundance of love that enables us to shake off the things, to shake off the fears, to shake off the places where we once found our identity, but where in reality, we were actually in bondage. <laughs> um, now, because of the uh, level of just general confusion on all things that are important today, I, I want us to ask this question, um, if, if 2020 is the year of freedom, what is freedom? Well, I, I like to break down freedom into three different types of freedom. Um, you'll see up here on, on the screen, we have three types here. Uh, the first type of freedom is this, it's the ability to choose. It's the ability to choose. Uh, and and I would say this is the most baseline freedom that there is. It's what our world is obsessed with. I have the right to choose. It's my right to choose this thing or that thing. And, uh, anything that would inhibit my ability to make a, a new choice is a bad thing. Now, I actually don't think that the, I'm not here to beat up on this idea at all. I actually think this is given by God. God in the in the garden in Genesis uh, gives uh, human beings the right to choose many different things: what they're going to name animals, what fruit they're going to eat, um, whether they obey Him or not. Um, the one thing that God uh, seems to prohibit, because we're made in His image, is people making choices that um, remove the choice of another individual from them. Uh, so. I really think that any good society, any good government is going to increase the ability of humans to choose so long as their choices don't uh, remove the dignity humanity um, or remove the choice of another human being. So that's the first type of freedom is, is the ability to choose. Um, then when you become a Christian, there's something that I call general freedom. So first type of freedom is ability to choose. Second type of freedom is general freedom. And I think that this freedom comes from being a disciple. And what it is, is it's this, it's saying no to sin and yes to his design for all of life. See, what happens when you become a Christian is that you move from the freedom of choice. I have the ability to choose whatever I want. You move from that, uh, to the freedom of choosing correctly. 
And I call it general freedom because these, these correct choices are the same for every disciple. Um, it's no to sin and it's yes to him. It's no to thinking patterns that are not compatible with the thinking patterns of Jesus. It's no um, to whatever gross sin you've had in your life in the past, uh, you know, whatever it is, it's saying no to those things and it's saying yes to the discipleship ethic that Jesus exemplifies in the New Testament and the New Testament then describes after his life. Uh, so that's general freedom. Every Christian is asked to do the same thing, the same ethic uh, that leads to freedom um, because it's the ethic of Jesus and his life is life that's really life. Now, the third type of freedom is specific freedom. And um, I, I think that specific freedom is a little bit different than general freedom. Specific freedom, are the, it, it com- comes from the unique choices that each disciple must make with God for their lives personally. So it's a little bit different. There's general freedom, which is every follower of Jesus has to make the same decisions, no to sin, yes to him. But then God gets even more specific. We talked a little bit um, a couple weeks ago about that, that quote from C.S. Lewis that says, you know, many people come to Jesus and, and they say, um, if you imagine yourself as a home, they would say, yeah, God, I know that I had some leaky pipes. God, I know that I had some issues here and there, and I, I'm so glad that you're addressing the plumbing. I'm so glad that you're addressing the drainage. I'm, I, I can understand we had a leaky roof there. I, I'm so glad that you're addressing the roof. But if you come to God, he doesn't just um, fix you up to make you normal. He remodels you to make you beautiful. And so, uh, you know, so, and sometimes it, it really can hurt. Sometimes it really can feel like, well, what are you doing? I thought that you were just going to give me general freedom. He's like, no, I want to give you specific freedom. So yeah, we're building a new wing here and we're going to have a tower here and we're going to have a garden here. Um, see, see how, how many of you guys understand there can be uh, a follower of Jesus who is able to do things that you are not because you would worship the thing that they have or the experience that they're experiencing. And because we have a good father who doesn't want to lead you into things or experiences that will crush you, he's asking you to actually say no to that thing in order to get freedom over that thing, right? See, if you come to Jesus, he will never leave you at just general freedom. His aim for you is always freedom all the way down. This is what we call being disciples. It's the very essence of a life with him. Freedom will always cost you something, but on the other side of it, it's freedom. It's him. And this is what freedom is in the kingdom. It's letting go of the lesser in order to get what the designer has for you. It's letting go of the lesser in order to get what the designer has for you. And the challenge is this. Well, how do you know what is lesser in your life? How do you know it when you look at your life? How do you know what you're hanging on to that is actually lesser? And maybe the even greater challenge is this. Do you trust the designer? Do you trust him? How you get freedom in your life is basically a battle that happens between your understanding of God's goodness versus this belief. If I don't watch out for myself, no one will. I'm going to say that again. How you get freedom is basically a battle that happens between your understanding of God's goodness and the belief. If I don't watch out for myself, no one will. Uh, when I moved to Portland right after I graduated from college. I went to George Fox, and uh, when I was 22, I, I ended up moving to Portland, and, and it was my dream. I'd always wanted to live in the big city. I'd always wanted to, you know, I don't know, in a silly way, maybe make something of my life, do something uh, important. 
And so I found myself working at this great church um, in downtown Portland that was really, um, I, I felt like moving the needle in discipleship for many people in the city and, and even around our country. And I just really um, couldn't believe my, my luck, my blessing in uh, getting to work at this church and getting to learn from some of the people that I got to learn from. Um, but, but I remember, um, you know, I remember moving downtown and, and just, and seeing these buildings and just going, oh man, I never knew apartments were this nice. You know, I, I always thought that, you know, apartments, it was kind of a drag to live in an apartment, but man, some of these are just amazing. And, and I didn't, wow, everybody drives a nice car and, and I didn't realize that, you know, look at all this good food. I, I never knew about, you know, this stuff. And, um, and I remember just thinking, oh, just kind of almost being in love, enamored with the city. It just, wow, this place is just so amazing. And um, I remember uh, one day I was driving past the art museum and I, I just had this uh, phrase just kind of enter my mind, you know, and I was, pro- I was probably 22, 23 years old. I'm driving past the art museum and I just, I'm looking up at this really beautiful building, this apartment building, and I just remembered this phrase going through my head and it was this, Alex, if you don't look out for you, no one will. If you don't look out for you, no one will. And, I, and all of a sudden, you know, I didn't even really have an, a theology of what my agreement uh, necessarily does at that time. Obviously, we know now that you look at Genesis chapter 3, agreement empowers what you agree with. Um, there's no idea that can have authority over you unless you agree with it. And so I, I but I agreed with it in that moment. I thought, oh, you're, yeah, that's true. If I don't look out for myself, no one will. Look at all these people, you know. They have their own, uh, you know, agendas. They have their own lives that they're sustaining. They have their own things, their own bank accounts, their own, you know, equity, whatever. And if I don't look out for me, nobody's going to do it for me. Now, this idea completely shaped my understanding of how to be an adult in the world because I agreed with it, because I gave it power, all of a sudden I was captive to it. And, and really, it, it, it held me captive for the worse. Uh, soon I found that I was not free when it came to money because I didn't believe God was actually good enough to give me more than enough, so I got stingy. I thought if I don't look out for my, my money, no one's going to look out for me. I don't have any kind of a source of blessing in my life. I, I, I didn't trust God. And so all of a sudden I had to get stingy with my money. I wasn't free. I, I wasn't free with my career path because now my worth was tied up in my ability to perform well and to get promotion. I eventually worked myself into exhaustion for approval from other people. See, this belief that I had was anti-Christ and anti my identity being completely in him. No wonder I wasn't free. Freedom comes from trust. It always comes from trust. I want to show you the cycle of freedom as defined by the world. Here's the cycle of freedom as defined by the world. You got choices in front of you, all kinds of choices. The more choices, the better. So second, what inhibits my choice is bad. Anything that could stop me from choosing whatever it is that I want to choose, that's a bad thing. I need to get it out of my life. So then you go about and you choose the thing or experience that you want to involve yourself in. Then you end up getting owned by the thing because you need it. Then it doesn't satisfy you. Now you're owned by something that doesn't satisfy you, and so you need to increase your choices. You need to try something new. And this is what the world calls freedom. This is what maybe even some of you here tonight have called freedom. It's not freedom. Here's the freedom defined by Christ. You have choices. God gives us choices. He loves choices. It was his idea, right? 
But, it, but, but when you're in Christ, when your identity is fully in him and you're satisfied by him, then you have a belief in the goodness of God. I know, God, that my, my choice doesn't unveil my future. My choice doesn't unveil my destiny. My choice doesn't give me more joy than following you. I have a belief that you're the designer. You know what's best, right? Um, so then you choose to trust, right? All of a sudden, there's flourishing and enjoyment of what God has made. Rather than it owning you, you get to enjoy it, Right? See, real freedom is this. I remember what you have given me or I remember what you did for them. I won't be stingy because I trust you will do it again. That's where real freedom comes from. It doesn't come from you having options. It comes from you saying, I follow a God whose character is tried and true. I follow a God who did that in their life. And he's not a respecter of persons. In other words, he doesn't play favorites, so if he did it for them, <laughs> he could do it for me. He's that good. How many of you guys, you don't have to raise your hand, but I don't know, it's probably everybody. How many of you have ever had the experience where you see somebody else get something that you want? And you can think of all the reasons why they shouldn't have it and you should. Do you know what that is? It has nothing to do with you and them. It has everything to do with how you view God. Either he's good enough to supply what you need because he designed you, or he's not, right? This is where freedom really comes in. Now, what I want to do tonight, I want to open the scriptures, and I want to look at a moment that Jesus has with his disciples where he has this really interesting conversation basically explaining this idea. So go ahead, get your Bibles out, get your phones out, whatever you need to do. Turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 is where we're going to be. And uh, most of you have probably... I'm guessing read this, uh, the stories that are being referenced in this conversation, but I'm not sure that you've ever looked at this conversation specifically. I can't remember a message where this conversation was specifically uh, looked at in my life. So um, I want to do it tonight. Mark chapter 8, and we're going to be in verse 14. Mark chapter 8, verse 14. Now, leading up to this uh, conversation, Jesus has done some really miraculous things. He's fed the 5,000, right? Remember that story? The boy has his lunch. Jesus takes it, blesses it, multiplies it. You remember there's another moment also where Jesus feeds the 4,000. He does it twice. He's like, you thought that was cool? Check this out. Well, he does it again, and he feeds a group of 4,000 people as well. And then this conversation happens right after that moment. Verse 14, it says this. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. And it's like, dude, he knows. We, we, told, we didn't prepare. Verse 17 Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you still talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? They're like, okay, a little deep, man. We just forgot a loaf of bread. Verse 18, Jesus says this, do you have eyes but fail to see? And ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember Verse 19, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? 
Um, if you know the story of Jesus, you're probably familiar uh, with, these two, with these stories that he's referring to. Two different groups of people, 5,000 on one hand, there's 12 basketfuls uh, left over. It's more than enough, right, to feed all these people. Then there's the instance with 4,000, and there's seven basketfuls of food, more than enough left over from that moment. Now, um, the significance, obviously, of those two moments it's, it's deeper than just the miraculous. It's deeper than Jesus just doing a miraculous thing and providing uh, bread. Jesus was constantly using physical blessing, good things, to get at something deeper, something more profound than just what is physical. And this is what we see in the boat with his disciples after he feeds the 4,000. See, the disciples thought it was about bread. Verse 16, they discussed this with one another. It is because we have no bread. But it wasn't about bread at all, Right? It wasn't about whether they had bread or they didn't have bread. It was actually about yeast. It was about his abundance changing the leaven you have in you. It was about switching your yeast. That's what this passage is about. See, what actually keeps us from getting free? What keeps us from freedom? It's yeast. Okay, go with me. I know you're probably like, uh, okay. Um, Here's what I mean. Verse 15, look down at your Bibles, it says this. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now you would think, if you lived in the first century and you were a Jew, you would think that Jesus, he's got only so much time on earth, and he's got only, he only does, out of all of his time on earth, three years of ministry, you would think he'd be saying important things like this. Hey, listen, when somebody from the Roman military turns their sword on you, here's what you're supposed to do. That'd be helpful. It'd be good to know, right? Um, You you would think that he'd maybe say things like this. Um, Hey, listen, the Pharisees, they're going to say this, but I actually interpret the passage this way, and here's why. Here's just a little exegesis on Isaiah, whatever, right? You would think that Jesus would be really like warning them about maybe some other things, but here's what he says. He says, he warned them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now, why does Jesus do this? Why does he warn them about these different types of yeast? Well, think about this. What is yeast? Um, Yeast, metaphorically speaking here, is the underlying belief system of the person. Or, I know it's kind of mixing metaphors, it's the underlying belief system of bread. How do I know this? Because even though you can't see yeast, if you have just a lump of dough, there's no saying that's yeast, that's not yeast. When the dough comes in contact with the heat, what happens? It rises, right? So, so all of a sudden, in other words, the secret underlying factor of yeast exposes itself when heat is applied, right? So, so kind of get this metaphor. I know, like, it's a deep dive. You're tired. Get this metaphor. You want to know who you really are? Take a look at what happens when the disaster comes or the issue isn't solved. See, what you believe, your belief system, your yeast, if you will, may not be seen on the outside, but when the heat is turned up and the pressure comes and you're shown for who you really are, it's what rises up in you and fills your identity. That's yeast. That's what he's getting at. It's what you use to solve the issues of life and console yourself in chaos. When the chaos comes, when the issue comes, what comes to the surface? So the yeast of the religious and the yeast of the political 
are warned against by Jesus because those are things that get in the way of his disciples experiencing his provision. Do you remember how much was left over? This is why he says this in verse 17. Are you aware, aware of the discussion? Jesus asked them, why are you still talking about having no bread? Do you not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? What is he getting at? He's saying this, beware of these worldviews. Beware of these belief systems, the thinking of the Pharisees, the thinking of Herod. They will cause you to not see. They will cause you to not hear. They will cause you to forget the abundance that I just supplied in your life. Now, what kind of yeast do the Pharisees and Herod represent? First, Pharisee yeast. What is Pharisee yeast? Well, it's the religious system, right? It's the mindset that comes with religion. Which, what is that mindset? It's this. I'm good. I'm, I wouldn't really say it out loud, but I'm better. I'm okay because of what I've done. I, I, I know for a fact that I'm in the clear because of my performance and this thing or that thing. What religion does is it provides us a systematic way to find out who is in and who is out, right? You either do the stuff or you don't, okay? That's religion, that's the yeast of the Pharisees. It's a mindset that many, many, many people deal with, so beware of it. But then there's Herod's yeast, or Herod's leaven. What is that? Well, Herod was a ruler at the time of Jesus, so he's referring to the political mindset. What is Herod's yeast? It's the political mindset, which is posturing for whatever is convenient in a given moment. It's... I don't care really what you do with your life so long as you tweet the correct thing about it. So long as you have the right, if you, so long as you're towing the party line, you're gonna have work. But the instant you start, stop towing the party line, your job is in jeopardy. What is that? That's the political mindset. That's the political spirit. It, it, a great image of this is, is Jesus and Pilate. Jesus is brought before Pilate uh, to, to go to the cross. Pilate starts to have this tension. The, the, the mob mentality, the opinion police, they're out there and they're saying crucify him and he's like, yeah, but my wife just had a dream that he's like a divine guy, what? So what does he do? He washes his hands. What is that? Oh, that's just the political spirit. I'm gonna wash my hands of that group over there in order to keep myself culturally pure. It's sustaining oneself through advantageous connections. It's signaling to a tribe, to a base, that you're worthy of promotion because of what you hold mentally. See, the political spirit is the power of what people collectively can do. It's being intoxicated with the collective. Collectively, it's the power of the people we can do this. It's the opinion of the masses. This is what's true. And the religious spirit is, it's the power of my effort. It's my ability to get what I need in life. 
And both of these mindsets were dangerous then, and they still are dangerous today. Have you ever seen these mindsets before? Yeah. (laughs) See, the yeast of religion can cause you to start bargaining with God. And when you don't get what you think you deserve, the entire relationship comes crashing down because it never was really a relationship to begin with. It was always a transaction. That's what the religious, that's what the yeast of the Pharisees can do when it gets in you. And the yeast of politics, which is so prevalent today, has a way of sucking people into a mindset that, is, that all that matters is what's happening on the timeline. And the opinions of, of others, that's what matters most. Instead of responding to heaven, when the political yeast gets in here, your life essentially boils down to split-second reactions to people primarily online and then just moments of regret removing you from seeing God as our judge, not others, and God as our savior, not others. It's so dangerous. So why does he warn them if it's not obvious already? Well, neither of these ways of thinking will ever cause heaven to come. Because both of these ways of thinking, the political mind, the religious mind, they're focused on solving earth's issues with earth's solutions. The, the, the political mind is focused on, we got these earthly issues, so how can we get an earthly solution for these issues? The religious mind is actually doing the same thing. I have this earthly issue, my sin, I need to go pay penance. I need to go do this thing, I need to do that, right? It's solving earth's issues with earth's solutions, but we are not called to do that as disciples, we're called to solve earth's issues with heaven's solutions. You will not see heaven come to earth if you constantly use earth's solutions to solve earth's problems. It's these mindsets that keep you from freedom because it's these mindsets that will work to quench out of you the memory of God's goodness. This is why God says, or Jesus says this in verse 18. Do you have eyes but fail to see? In other words, can you see what's going on? No? Okay. Do you have ears and fail to hear? Can, can, you, can you listen to God and, and sense what you should do? No? Okay. Don't you remember? Can you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? He's saying to them, so you think that this is about bread. You think it's about your lack. Can you see? No, okay. Can you hear? No. At least can you remember the provision of God? He asked them, how much was left over? Isn't that an interesting question? What is he getting at? He's getting at that God's character, God's yeast, God's leaven, is a super abundance. What he's wanting is their minds and hearts shaped more by his abundance than by the religious system of the day or the political system of the day, his abundance. Receiving his provision Remembering what he has done becomes faith yeast that works its way into your life. And when the heat turns up, the faith begins to rise because you've fed yourself not on the ability of man, but the ability of God. 
Your freedom is tied to your ability to remember what God has done and your ability to surrender as a result. We just sang songs, surrendering is easy when it comes to you. What do we mean? I know who you are. I can give my life to you. See, it's when we feel lack, when we feel that lack defines us, that we begin to question if we have enough because of the circumstances going on around us. It's in those moments that whatever yeast is in us is going to come to the surface and our ways of thinking, our worldviews that are incompatible with freedom, those things are gonna get exposed. But it's a good thing. The reason why God brings things to the surface, the reason why God shows us lack either either in our, our trust in him or our character is not to shame us ever. He didn't die on the cross, go through all of that to shame us. He, he brings these things to the surface so that he can get us free. You want a year of freedom, you need a year of surrender. You want a year of freedom, you need a year of trust. One of the things um, that I, I just never do up here, if I meet with you, maybe I'll share more about like my personal life, but I just never air my dirty laundry up here. It's just something that I've made a decision not to do. This isn't a time for me to come up and be like, I've deconstructed my faith. Isn't that so amazing? No, no, no. This is a time, that was funny. This is a time uh, for me to actually step into the truth and be an example of what it looks like to walk in faith regardless of circumstance, okay? So oftentimes I don't get up here, maybe even some of you are like, I don't even really know Alex. I know he knows stuff about the Bible, but I don't, I don't know who he is. Like, what does he do? The reason for that is that I'm not sure that this is the place always for it. But one of the things that I do try to do is I try to be as transparent as possible. When I share with you guys, I want to share things from my life, things that I'm going through. Uh, I want to be honest with you guys. Um, so, so with that said, I just want to be honest with you that I think this, um, this last month, December, uh, was probably the hardest month I've had in our marriage, I would say, um, at least, uh, all five and a half years of being married, um, certainly the hardest month I've had planting a church. Um, and people always ask me, they say, uh, they'll come up to me and they think it's like a, oh, I'm not trying to make fun of them, so I won't say that. Anyway, people will come to me and they'll say, what's the hardest part about planting a church? And they really mean well. You guys know this if you call this place home. We don't focus on what the hardest things are. We focus on him. Okay, there's a, whatever you focus on, you're gonna produce around you. So I'm not, I'm not, I, don't go, I don't come into this, plant in church and go like, oh, um, it's gonna be so hard. Now I'm gonna you know, lose my faith and my marriage is gonna crumble. No, I'm not focused on that. I'm focused on him. And actually, planting in church has been really fun and easy. It has. People ask me all the time, like, what's the hardest part? I'm like, there really isn't a hard part. We have an amazing team. Our people love to worship. We're experiencing God's presence. Can I ask for anything more than that, okay? Part of it is that my metrics for success aren't like we have a, a huge church and we've got to build a building and we, you know, my metrics for success are really simple. Did he show up and am I doing what he asked me to do? Those are my metrics, that's it. So yeah, it's very successful. I'm loving it. The hard part about anything in life, about ministry in general, is death to self. That is hard. So people say like, oh, ministry is so hard. No, 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 ministry is not hard. You have the Holy Spirit, wind at your back. It's not hard. What's hard is dying to yourself. That's the hard part. Um, so this past month, a lot of things came to the surface. My yeast rose, and I found out some things about myself. Um, I just lived this past month with this low-level anger. 
And I'm not an angry person. You ask anybody who knows me. If you ask Jake, is Alex an angry person? That's not the first thing that he's going to say that I am. In fact, he probably would say, no, Alex is not an angry person. Um, but just little things. I'd be driving. I wouldn't get a parking spot. And I needed the parking spot because it's crazy. It's the holidays. And I'm like, no, I don't want to walk in the rain, you know? Um, little things like this. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, it's like the biggest deal in the world. It is, it is ruining my day. What is that? I, 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 that's not me. Um, I, I started uh, just getting super ungrateful. I started walking around my house. I love my house. I started walking around my house and being like, I am so sick of that drain being clogged. I am so sick of that light not working. I got to go to Ace again and get another light bulb for this light. Why isn't it working? And I just started walking around and being like, you know, I have friends who have better houses than this, and this probably never happens in their house. You know, I started doing all that. Next thing you know, I just realized I'm just not content. I wish my life was different. It bleeds over into my relationship with Emily. You could ask her. She'd be honest with you. I was mean to my wife in the past month. There were things that I just snapped at her about, things that I was frustrated with. Just like, you know, this is the reason why my life stinks. It's because you do that. You ask her the first five years of our marriage. That's not even part of the, it's a, we don't have those kind of conversations. That's not part of our marriage. So all of a sudden, I'm just going, wow, like, what is this stuff coming up in my life? Where is this coming from? I look around, I'm like, yeah, you know, the, the heat is turned up. Like, there's issues, you know, in, in our home. There's, there's things going on. There's issues, like we're building a church, and, and there's all kinds of, I have responsibilities, just like everybody else. So there, there's heat, right? The question is, what do you do when that happens? When you see in yourself things that, that you don't want to see, when you see in your character things that you go, I'm not even sure I can deal with this, what do you do? Do you punish yourself? Okay, I'm just going to try harder. My buddies and I, when we were in high school, we started following Jesus, very zealous. And when we found out any of us had done something that we shouldn't do or we sinned in some way, we said, okay, you got to fast tomorrow then. <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? It was like a punishment. It's like fasting should not be a punishment, just a heads up. It's not good theology. But it was like, okay, man, dude, I'm going to fast tomorrow, bro. And what that boils down to is I'm going to pay penance. I don't trust that Jesus' work is enough, so i got to make it up for it in my own body. So, so do I punish myself? No, that's religion. Uh, do I find people who are going to endorse my thinking? Like, yeah, you know what, man? You really do lack. Yeah, man, you really are a victim. Yeah, look at your life, man. Yeah, it's not right that those people have more than you. We should take from them and give to you. Do I do that? No, what is that? That's political thinking. That's finding opinions that agree with me. What happens in that moment is I go, I want to change. The issue, the yeast in me has come to the surface. And so you know what I did? I repented to my wife. It took a couple of days. You ask her, there was a couple of days where I had to say sorry like three different times. Okay, I'm sorry. I don't know why I'm thinking this way. I don't know why I'm believing this way. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And this is what she said to me. She said, your lack is defining you more than what you've received. And I said, yeah. Yeah, that's true. See, Alex, your identity is less in what he says about you and it's more in what you perceive that you're missing out on. Oh, you construct an identity like that, you're gonna be disappointed. And then she said this to me, very wise words, you need to meet with Andoni. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I need somebody who's just gonna slap me. So I meet with Andoni. And uh, he's not here tonight, so whenever you listen to this, Andoni, very grateful for that meeting that he, you had with me. And so I tell him all this stuff, I get even more detailed. Here's what I've been up to, here's what I'm doing, here's how I'm thinking, here's how I've been behaving. And he just sits across from me and he just goes, why do you think you have to control everything? 
That's it, isn't it? You're right, Andoni, I don't trust him. And so I'm scrambling to make my life work for me. The heat of life exposed a belief system that completely lacked trust, so no wonder I was anxious and lashing out on the one that I love. See, anxiety's not random. There's a lie in our culture today that anxiety, you can catch anxiety like you catch a cold. All of a sudden it's like, whoa, I, I wasn't anxious and now I'm anxious. And you know, you're never supposed to ask somebody who's anxious, you just can't do it. You're not supposed to ask them, well, is there something behind the anxiety? Is there a fear there? What, what's going on? You're not supposed to do that. You know what the first thing that our vet asked us when we told her that our dog was anxious? Well, she's got to be afraid of something. Hmm. Anxiety happens because we don't trust. It is, yeah. We have a world where we have more information about things we can't control bombarding us than ever before. And then we wonder why we're anxious. It's because we don't actually trust him. We don't believe what he said. And because we don't believe what, we sa- what he said, we have nothing to put our feet upon except the shaky ground of what we can cobble together in a religious way or who we can find to agree with us that, no, you're really right. The religious and the political spirit, they're shaky ground. So in that moment, as I'm confronted by my wife and as I'm confronted by Andoni, what do, how do I deal with it? What do I do? Well, I repent. What does it mean to repent? It means to believe again. That's what it means. What does it mean to repent? It means change your mind. You've got to start believing something else. You were believing something, and it's not in line with the scriptures, so you've got to believe again. And so what I did is I started, I opened up the scriptures, I read Psalm 33, and it just gave me such uh, solace. I went and I started listing all of the things that I'm thankful for. Most of repentance can just happen when you get a notepad out and you start listing things you're thankful for. And I started looking at my life and just going, God, you've given me so much. And look at all this abundance that I actually have. I went back and what did I do? I remembered. It's not random that he asked his disciples when they say, it's because we lack bread. He goes, oh, but can you remember? Can you remember? Can you remember tonight? Yesterday, uh, my wife and I, we went to the beach just randomly. We go to uh, Cannon Beach and then down to Manzanita, and it was nice at the beach. It was rainy here, I know. It was nice at the beach, so um, be jealous. Anyway, so we're having just this great day. We take our dog out on the beach, and she's running around. She has no anxiety uh, on the beach, apparently. So she's running around, and she's like chasing the sea foam as it's getting whipped up by the wind, and I'm just looking at my life. I'm going Oh, my beautiful wife, who's smart and intelligent and challenges me in all these ways, has sharpened me and made me a better man over the past five years. I could have never dreamed of having a woman like this. There she is, and she's going to have our child. This beautiful day at the beach, look at our dog enjoying herself. And, and, And it was just like all the abundance that you've poured out on my life, Lord. I could cry just thinking about it. And, and here's the reality. You know, a, a decade has gone by now. And 10 years ago, if you had shown me a video from yesterday, if you could have taken that video and gone back in time and showed my 19-year-old self that video, 
I would have fell over with joy. I would have crumpled with, with amazement. I wouldn't have been, I, I would have been so beyond what I practically imagined for myself. See, you guys understand, there's dreams that we have, but we normally don't live by our dreams. We live by what we seem, what there's a plausibility structure for. Yeah, plausibly, I could probably have that happen in my life and do that thing or that thing. It was beyond my dreams. It was beyond what I had practically imagined. See, 10 years ago, um, I was, exactly, 10 years ago, you remember this, my mom's back there. Uh, 10 years ago, I studied abroad in Bolivia. With, I was at Fox and I had a semester abroad in Bolivia. And I was, my major at Fox was uh, missions. I thought I wanted to be a missionary. I thought, oh, that sounds so sexy. I'm gonna be a missionary. I'm gonna go you know, uh, you know, preach the gospel to these unreached people groups. I'm gonna drive around a land cruiser. It's gonna be incredible. And um, I got one of those things right, uh, still. But um, I realized very quickly, within a month, I'm not going to be a missionary. This stinks. Um, I, I, look, I know that there are missionaries who come to our church, and you are an example of what it looks like to surrender and lay your life down for the Lord. But I was like, no, this is horrible. I don't want to eat this food. I don't want to sleep around bugs. I, it was just, I couldn't do any of it. And, but what God did for me in those four months was he basically, it was like boot camp. He took me on a journey of surrender. He took me on a journey of getting me free for those four months. And, and, and he took me through this gauntlet of letting go of the things that I thought I needed. Letting go of the things that I thought I needed to make happen in my life. Um, I, I remember he, 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 he took me outside of the comfort of the United States. He took me outside of the comfort of my home. And in the heat of not having things the way that I would prefer, he just one by one began releasing me from what I thought I had to have to be human. The biggest lesson, I've shared this with a number of you. I don't, I don't remember if I shared it here on a Sunday. But the biggest lesson that I learned out of that entire time, the biggest thing that I had to surrender was my desire for a spouse. I, so I was 19 years old, and I thought I was losing time. I was like, I'm 19. I should be married by now. Anyway, uh, so I, I, but I, I was there, and I remember um, just thinking to myself, you know, did anybody who grew up in the church, you probably know this, you know, you had the purity ring and then you had to write letters to your future spouse. It's a beautiful thing to do if you want to. But I just was like, I let it consume me. I'm thinking, oh, my future spouse is gonna be like this or like this. And, and when I get back, I, I'm gonna put myself into training so that I become the kind of man that a woman would wanna marry. I'm gonna be, you know, and I, I just got this really, you know, this focus in my life. And I remember there was this one day I'm, I'm sitting in my room, I'd just done some homework, and I'm kind of looking out the window thinking, you know, this is like before, I didn't have an iPhone, I didn't have internet in this house that I was staying in, there was nothing to do but look out the window. And I'm looking out the window, and I'm just thinking, and all of a sudden, I sense the Lord say this to me, Alex, I don't want you to get married I want you, when you move back home, which was Newburgh at the time, I want you to go to that monastery out there, I didn't know anything about this monastery, but the monastery that's out in uh, Yamhill, Carlton area. Um, I want you to go and become a monk and take a vow of celibacy. I was like, what? <laughs> no. And I, all of a sudden, this, this panic set into my heart. See, the Lord had been bringing me along. He's like, I want you. I, I want you to give this to me and not do that with your life. And I'm like, ooh, that's hard, but okay. I want you to, to give this to me, and I, and I don't want you to pursue that anymore. And I'm like, oh, really? Okay. And then he hit 
the mother load. I don't want you to be married. And so you know what I did? I started bringing up all of the other people I knew. See, I only understood general freedom. I started bringing up all the other people I knew who were married. I said, you know, at the time I was uh, uh, going, uh, going to uh, Solid Rock, and so I, I thought of my pastor. I thought of John Mark. I said, John Mark's married, and he's great. Why can't I be married? God, oh, trust me, I could be married, and I would do great things for you. I promise you that, right? I'm like, John Mark is married, and look at all the impact that he's having. And I started thinking about, my parents are married. God, I wouldn't even be here without marriage. So you've you got to let me get married, right? you got to let me get married. And I'm, I'm telling you guys, this lasted for a month. It was exhausting. And the Lord, he just wouldn't let me go. And so I kept on just saying, okay, uh, God, come on, there's got to be a way. And I thought, maybe I'm just kind of feeling weird. Maybe I ate something weird. I'll wake up tomorrow. I won't be thinking about this weird stuff anymore. I'm totally going to get married, right? And so I, I woke up the next morning, and, and there he is. And he's going like this. He's saying, there's a split in the road here, Alex. And down this road, you get married, but we lose this. You don't lose me, but we lose this intimacy that we have because you violated your obedience. Or you come down this road, you don't get married, and you obey me. And we maintain this relationship that we have. Oh, I battled so hard. I remember the la when it all ended, I can't, there was this one night where we got to dinner, and I'm like psyching myself up. I'm living with this Bolivian family. Nobody speaks English. I didn't know Spanish. Think about that for four months. Um, and and I am, I'm sitting at dinner and I'm thinking, I'm really gonna say yes to him. I'm really gonna say, okay, if that's what, if, if, if okay, then you have to fill my identity because I don't know, I've been banking on this my whole life, Lord. And I sat there, and, and I remember getting, I said, okay, in my head I thought, when I get home, I'm going to go right to my room, I'm going to get down on my knees, because you can't fake them out. You can't be like, yeah, yeah, sure, I won't get married. No, 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 it has to be real. He knows your heart. So I, I get up to my room, I get on my knees, and I really meant it. I said, Lord, if you don't want me to be married, then okay, I won't be married. And all of a sudden, a rush of peace just flooded my body. I relaxed. See, I'd been living in anxiety trying to make my life happen for me, but the instant that I trusted him, the peace of the Lord came. And I said, okay. And you know what he said to me? He said, it was so wonderful. It was such a great moment in my life. He said, he, I just felt like God was laughing, and he said, now I can trust you that you're not gonna worship marriage and what would have owned you and what would have consumed you won't. You're gonna enjoy it so you can get married. See, that's what I have to remember, his abundance on me of what it looks like to walk hand in hand with him, surrender to him. What does it produce? It produces the joy of the Lord. It produces incredible freedom. So tonight, can you remember can you surrender? You want to get free? You know that thing that rises up that you want to be free from? He's asking for you to trust him again. Do you have stories of provision that shape your beliefs more than what is happening around you right now? Do you have stories of his provision? Even if it's not your story, have you seen another person's story of such provision 
that will shape you and put that faith yeast down in you so that when the heat is turned up, you can remember and you can think heavenly rather than earthly. That's what I believe 2020 is gonna be about. I believe, church, that we're gonna be the kind of church that surrenders like that and finds freedom on the other side of giving him our full yes. Amen? Okay, let's stand up together.